Welcome back to another episode of Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who have crossed paths with our department. My name is Jeremy Reed, and this week on the podcast, we're returning to the topic of fieldwork amidst the global pandemic, this time joined by Matilda Lind, who's joining us from Estonia. Matilda is a PhD candidate in folklore, focusing on material culture and multi-species ethnography. The purpose of this podcast in general is to document snapshots or snap sounds of our department. Conversations such as the one you're about to hear serve as an archive of our shared and individual experiences and are vital to working towards our way through, uh, forward and beyond the pandemic. If you're preparing to head into the field or finding your way in the field or figuring out how to debrief and begin dissertating, there's likely resonance for you here. Listen carefully and listen compassionately. Thanks for joining me today, Matilda. Hey, thank you. So as, as an introduction, um, tell us a bit more about what your research is and the journey that you took to arrive at that topic. Yeah, so um, my research kind of, um, well, it's a little complicated. I think everyone's research is a little complicated. And mine is at this kind of, um, uh, I guess, like a confluence of different things, this kind of point where a few different ideas come together. And one of them is traditional crafts. So I'm interested in um, wool crafts. And, and what I mean by traditional crafts is um, crafts that are being per perceived locally as traditional. Um, and locally, I mean in Estonia. Um, and also that have some sort of like time depth. A lot of them are associated with the national costume here, uh, which you know is a very big thing in Europe to have these kind of national costumes. And, um, and then the other thing is uh, cultural landscapes. So I'm really interested in where these things come together. So um, the cultural landscape being, you know, that we have our natural landscapes that we think of as, as uh, nature, right? So like the wild forests and everything. And of course, for most places, there has been some sort of human habitation and that's made an impact over, you know, often like thousands upon thousands of years. And so these cultural landscapes, a lot of them um, uh, harvesting practices, gathering um, agricultural practices and uh, pastoral practices are all very important to the maintenance of those landscapes. And there are a lot of species that have developed um, around these sort of uh, maintenance practices of humans and domesticated animals. So of course, where you have sheep, you also have wool. And so we have this wonderful diversity in the world of these um, native sheep breeds in various places. Um, and the types of wool that they produce are very deeply tied to the traditional wool crafts that are practiced in those places. And so that's where I'm interested in uh, material culture is this kind of nexus between the um, sheep grazing, the animal husbandry and the actual wool production and how that flows into the craft traditions of the area. So in Estonia, I'm studying the native sheep breed. Uh, they're called Kihnu native sheep. Um, they're also native sheep more broadly in Estonia. Um, so that's actually kind of something I'm hashing out is kind of the, I guess like heritage designation around one branch of, or, or one type of these native sheep and then how others are not getting that kind of heritage designation. But yeah, anyway, so it's, it's been um, an interesting journey. There are a lot of things to take into account, like I'm having to take into account material culture and ecology at the same time. And that's where I've kind of gotten into this multi-species ethnography issue. Um, it, it's really interesting, but of course it's been really difficult with the pandemic. Right, what led you to Estonia in the first place? Um, that was also kind of through crafts. It was also through language. Um, as you probably know, Indiana University is pretty well known for how many languages are taught there. And it's the only place in the US where you can study post-advanced Estonian. Um, so you can get like really deep into the language there. And um, so basically I, I love languages. I'm not very good at them, but I love them. And so I, I was, you know, at IU and looking for something to do with my summer that would be really interesting and productive and you know, preferably bring some funding. And there is a summer language program 
Um, and it's really great. It's this language intensive. It's also a lot. Um, so it, it's the real commitment if you do it. Have you done one of those yourself? I, I did it for Arabic and classes started, yeah. I believe at eight o'clock or 8.30 in the morning. Um, <laughs> brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. It's also like a great experience. You end yes. up creating these really strong bonds with your classmates. Um, but you get a whole year's worth of language instruction over your summer. And it is funded if you apply for the funding and get it. And um, I had just really wanted to learn a Finno-Ugric language. And that's a, a complicated backstory that I won't get into, but it's super interesting, very small group of languages. And um, I found that Estonian was offered. And I was like, well, I know about Estonia because they have a famous knitted lace tradition, uh, Hapsalu lace. And so I thought, well, let's, you know, let's poke around and find out. And I sent a message to the person teaching and uh, that's Phoebe Kajkivik. It turns out that she is uh, a lecturer at IU and has been there for many years. And so that if I uh, did the summer language, then I could continue my studies with Phoebe Kai um, after the summer was over, which isn't true of all these languages. And so I was like super excited about that. And um, if you've studied one of these less commonly taught languages, you know, you just get brought in in a really big way. There aren't that many learners. And like when somebody comes in with enthusiasm, they're like, oh, great, we have everything for you. Come on. <laughs> and oh, so that's, that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> well, that's an amazing uh... Yeah, coincidence and, yeah, and confluence of things. Um, is, is there a common thread amongst uh, learners of Estonian or Finno, you, uh, sorry, the latter part of that language family? Finno-Ugric, yeah. <laughs> no, I would say there's not sometimes, but, but there are actually a lot of people who get into these languages um, out of linguistics because they're very interesting linguistically. Um, there, it's kind of like a weird mishmash of small languages. There are um, some very small indigenous populations in Siberia that speak these languages. And then you have the larger areas, uh, which are Estonia and Finland and Hungary, actually. So, um, and you know, larger Estonia has like not a very large population. And um, I think maybe, oh gosh, how many Estonian, fluent Estonian speakers are there in the world? Uh, maybe a million in Estonia, maybe 1.5 million, I'm not quite sure. Um, but it's not a very large language. Uh, sure. Finland is kind of the big center. Um, so yeah, you have a lot of linguists, but also Estonia is um, a really interesting place in that it is simultaneously extremely technologically sophisticated and focused on uh, entrepreneurship in a really like, um, I guess like technological way. Like um, it's the number one place in Europe for startups, for example. Wow. So you have a lot of people coming in who are interested in business. Um, it's also one of the pioneers of e-governance. So people who are into this sort of thing and political science, it can be very interesting for them. And then you have people like me, uh, maybe a little less often, who are interested in the, the traditional culture. And then there are a lot of people who get into the language because um, they're what, uh, they're like, what do you say? Diaspora, Valiseslana uh, is what they call a person like that here. So somebody who is Estonian, but from outside Estonia, um, there's a huge diaspora population because of World War II. Um, when the Soviets um, invaded toward the end of the war, then um, a lot of people ended up fleeing and getting to the US and Australia and Canada. So you get a lot of these kind of like heritage language learners. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, so I know that you're both a scholar of material culture, but you're also, I believe, a lifelong practitioner of some of the crafts that you study. Um, tell me about, you know, your day-to-day -day in Estonia and the kind of interweaving of both your scholarship and also your practice? Yeah, it's changed a lot over time. Well, okay, one of the things that I was really interested in coming to Europe was um, folklore was being studied, I felt, in a very different way in Europe from in the U.S. And in a lot of ways, I felt like it was <clears throat> maybe more compatible with the way that I was thinking about folklore. Um, that 
there's um it's influenced by the fact that there are a lot of like archives here like really old archives and um so people are able to do more of these kind of regional and comparative studies and like in a different way uh than what you get in the u.s typically like when you have an actual like national archive of folklore and it's going back to when there were like missionaries coming in and like you know the you know 17th century or something it really affects how folklore can be studied uh, but then also um you know we have here these uh national song festivals in the baltic region um all three baltic countries have this uh singing tradition and that gets um associated with national costume so um, there is a very strong like um, kind of public aspect of the costume. Anyway, material culture is studied very differently here also. So I was interested in being socialized into how folklore was studied and how material culture was studied. And they're, they're really quite different things here. And um, so when I first got here, I, um, my contacts were at the Villian D. Culture Academy of the University of Tartu. And just so you know, uh, when I use like the terminology here, um, they say native crafts. That's the terminology they like to okay. use. So I'll use that terminology for it. So part of the Villiandi Culture Academy um, is concerned with studying native crafts. And that's um, textiles, metalwork, and construction. I think that's all. I think that's all of them. And so I had a contact there who was the person who kind of facilitated me getting here and is kind of my supervisor on this side. And um, she offered, you know, come to our classes. You know, we have these like wonderful handicraft classes. And I was like, oh, great, I'll do that. And also um, I got to go to um, one of the courses with the English language master's students. Uh, they have this program that's um, folkloristics and applied heritage studies. And um, so I was in a course from that program on how craft is studied in Estonia. So that was super useful for me. And then I was also learning these hands-on crafts, uh, which I thought were, I thought there might be more, um, I guess, like translation help than there would be, because um, I'm not awesome at the language. Um, but uh, it turned out to be okay because I already do all these crafts. So like learning the Estonian versions was, you know, it was fairly intuitive, but um, so, so that's how it started for me was I started out in the classroom actually um, with my hands-on studies of these crafts. And here they have a very strong feeling in craft studies that you should um, be a practitioner in order to understand the crafts. So um uh, it's in, in like the literature about craft studies, this is uh, talked about as like process-led uh, research and or practice-led, sorry, practice-led research. And that is uh, a very strong orientation for me now because I was kind of like socialized into that. So trying to understand um, the, the different crafts through practice. Um, right now, I'm not doing as much field work, unfortunately, because Omicron is wild here. But normally, um, I do a lot of craft practice. I've been uh, working a lot with old spinning wheels and um, learning more about them and how they were made and used through examining the marks of wear and um, restoring them myself. So that's been a really interesting process. I don't know what else to say. It's it's so variable. I've of course done a lot of field work where I've done interviews and hands-on work. I guess the other thing I could say is that um, you know another part of what I do is this kind of like um, multi-species work, and so very often my field work is physically out in the field. That's great. <laughs> I've had to wrestle quite a lot of sheep in my field work. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what. If you work with animals out in the field get a lens hood for your camera. I promise sure. you, you'll need it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and, and, spe and speaking of images and also your old wheels, I should also mention to anyone listening that you have a wonderful Instagram account called Hooded Crow Crafts, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where, where you can see a lot of this documented, um, including your own handiwork, but also some of the materials that you've been encountering. Yeah. 
Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoy the photography. And I've also gotten into uh, filmmaking a little bit. Like I've been uh, making short films on, uh, just putting them on YouTube, but about um, kind of my hands-on work with um, old textile tools here. Yeah, since, since you already come in with such a you know, vast amount of hands-on experience uh, when it comes to what would you, what category of crafts and media do you work with? Textiles, is, oh, that, is, okay. that the right, is, is that the right way of saying it? Yeah, 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 um, that's great, yeah. Or how like much of that did you have to, how much of that did you have to unlearn or how much of that translated uh, yeah, neatly into what you're doing now? I actually published an article about how hard it was to learn how to knit in Estonia. <laughs> <laughs> so I started out as um, a, a knitter. Um, I guess, well, first I started out with sewing when I was younger, but um, then I learned how to knit and crochet. And um, I've been uh, spinning yarn since uh, about 2010, but I learned how to knit like years before that. And um, so you'd think, you know, I come to Estonia and, you know, I'm already a knitter. I can just knit the way an Estonian suit. Uh, no, not even a little bit. It took me a year to wow. learn how to knit. Yeah. Like really like focused practice. And it took, I, I apparently am a slow learner. It took three expert knitters, like really renowned knitters to troubleshoot what weird things I was doing as a self-taught American knitter. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I just wasn't holding the needles right. And um, the other thing is that they're knitting here is the stitches are so tiny and they're really, really tight and you have to tension the yarn really hard. So I wasn't holding the yarn correctly to get good tension on it. And I had had really bad tendonitis in the past. So I learned how to knit loosely to kind of protect my hands and wrists, but it actually was counterproductive in the end. It's kind of like if you've had like a back injury and then you start sitting a weird way to kind of protect your back, sure. but it's actually making it worse. It was like that. So I had to completely relearn how to hold the needles and how to tension the yarn. And also these needles are way smaller than what people use in the US. So that alone makes it more complicated. Uh, it was just really, really difficult. But luckily they were really patient with me. And um, I've actually been to the um, Kihnu Island, which is kind of my primary field site. I've been to the Kihnu Knitting Festival twice now. And uh, the first time I had a really hard time. And the second time I actually did really well. So I feel much better. And the Kihnu knitters um, were uh, more or less approving of me, which means an awful lot. <laughs> you know, before we transition into um, talking about normal times uh, or abnormal times, just one more thought about uh, things as they quote used to be. In, in terms of your daily life in Estonia, what's, uh, I guess without exoticizing it, what's one thing where, or one practice or one aspect of day-to-day -day life where you're like, you know, I really want to keep doing this when I get back. And conversely, oh what's gosh. one thing about the States that you miss? Okay, so um, maybe I'll go with what I miss first, which is seasoning in the food. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm I'm uh, just really into spices. I love like spicy food, and Estonian food is uh, a lot of potatoes and beets and um, dill, and not a lot else in terms of seasoning. So I do kind of miss that. Oh gosh, I don't know. There are just so many lovely things about Estonia. Um, as far as things that I would keep doing. exactly um in a lot of ways I was already kind of socialized for Estonia through all of my language learning because I you know when you're in this like less commonly taught language classes you're in um you're with your language group four times a week right. and it's it's very high contact um but I also come from this like part of the northeastern U.S. where everyone's like a bit reserved and that's Estonian culture too. So it didn't feel super unfamiliar to me. Actually, um, when, when they've asked from, um, you know, I've, I've been like, uh, 
a guest in some of the like conversation hours and things like that that have happened virtually with the Estonian classes at IU. And when they've asked me what was the biggest surprise for me here, it was usually that there weren't that many surprises. Hmm. That things just kind of, yeah, they felt fairly normal. Um, what I love here is that uh, the pace of life is pretty slow and um, people are really into like going out in the woods. Um, I can just go on a hike in a bog in the autumn and pick cranberries out of the bog. And I, I love this. It's, and bogs are actually lovely places, by the way. We have this idea that they're the same as swamps and that they smell bad. They're fantastic. They're beautiful. Um, so I just really love this kind of like, um, access to nature and like valuing that. Um, of course, like, you know, this is, it is a little bit of an, an exoticizing thing. Like if you talk to an Estonian about that part of their culture, they will say we're like this, but also that's kind of this weird stereotype that we have for ourselves. And, and almost everybody I've talked to about that has kind of complicated that for themselves and their own sense of identity. Um, but nevertheless, still, it's like, uh, very accessible and it is something that a lot of people do it's very normal to like go out mushroom hunting for example it's a sure, very I mean, common cultural trope almost already in what you've described i mean there's the juxtaposition between you know stating that it's you know this technologically entrepreneurial place while at the same time very dedicated to you know kind of a pastoral and bucolic you know approach to living and, and yeah, holding those actually, two intention that's been a, a really big theme with the uh, research that I've been doing on the native sheep and traditional crafts, because um, you have this like ancient sheep breed, they've done um, genetic analyses and found that it probably goes back about 3000 years. And, but notice what I just said, they've done genetic analyses. Right. Everything is very scientific with this breed and how it's being defined. And yet um, it's also being seen as like extremely archaic. So you always have this juxtaposition of like highest high technology plus this like very deep sense of tradition and rootedness in the land. Let's now dive into the abnormal stuff, the difficult stuff. What's the pandemic been like and how has it affected you know, everything? It has affected everything. Okay, so it, at the beginning, we had it um, in a way a lot easier than people did in the US. Um, when it got here, the country just locked down real hard. Um, not, as, not as hard as places like France. Like we didn't have this kind of restriction where like you can't go outside on a walk without maybe checking in with the police or something like that. We didn't have that sort of restriction, but everything shut down. Um, you could get groceries and that was kind of about it. Like you could go to the um, pharmacist or whatever, but like their shopping centers weren't open. They closed down even the outdoor playgrounds. I mean, just everything. And, um, and we stayed that way uh, for a little while. And we have a really low population density here. So that has made it so much easier for um, these waves of the pandemic to kind of pass quickly. Um, and usually they get kind of like centered in um, mostly the capital in Tallinn. Um, and um, there's this one area that has like a really high concentration of Russian speakers where they had a lot harder of a time, I think, getting kind of the health information out and getting buy-in from people. Um, so that area also had a really hard time with it. Um, but anyway, so we locked down and then it kind of went away. And so that first pandemic summer where everyone in the US was still having a really hard time, we had a free summer, like normal summer. No one was wearing masks, nothing was happening. We had like fewer than 30 infections per day in the entire country all summer. And, um, and so I actually went out to Kihnu Island. I spent the whole summer doing field work. It was my most productive field work summer. And then um, after that, it started to get bad. Um, the summer ended and COVID started really um, building up. And so I'm this kind of person where if there's a cold going around um, and people get sick for like three days from that cold, I'll get sick for two weeks. 
and I catch everything. So I was very scared. I felt like <clears throat> if I caught COVID, this was going to probably put me in the hospital. I could die. Um, so I was very careful. Uh, I was very concerned about it. So um, when it started to get really bad again, um, I decided, okay, I'm, you know, quarantining. <laughs> like, I don't care what the, the government says about what's safe or not. I'm not doing anything. And, um, and I was just kind of waiting on the vaccine. And then um, when the vaccine came for y'all in the US, we didn't get it for a long time after. So I wasn't able to be fully vaccinated and ready to go out in the field again until the very end of the next summer. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I think y'all got it pretty much in like early spring and we started to be allowed to get it um, in June, I believe. And then we had to wait six weeks between shots. Um, do you remember which version you got? I know AstraZeneca was more common in Europe than- I got Pfizer. Well, you got Pfizer. Yeah, um, we started out with um, AstraZeneca mostly and then there were a lot of concerns about it. And it, it was a moving target too. It like kept changing. Um, we also had a lot of problems with distribution. Um, we also had a very, uh, very right-wing faction in the government um, right before that who uh, were really into the kind of like COVID denial and anti-vaccine thing. They're still around, but they were part of the uh, ruling coalition in the parliament. So that made things, I think, a lot more complicated with um, coordinating the vaccination effort. And since then, the, the vaccination effort has been very well coordinated, but we do have fairly low um, acceptance. So we've got, I think, 62% of the population is now vaccinated. Like, I don't know that that counts the booster shot. I think it's first two shots. Um, so anyway, there was, um, there was a lack of seriousness about... Um, like vaccine precautions from a lot of people. Uh, we've had a lot of this kind of like same sort of anti-mask, anti-vaccine sort of thing that you get in the US here as well, um, which made me feel a lot less comfortable about going out into the world and doing things. Sure. Cause I just kept encountering anti-vaxxers and I felt like, you know, I'm very vulnerable. So I was concerned. Um, so I had to really change, um, like I had some fieldwork materials but they weren't enough. They weren't what I wanted them to be. So I had to actually shift to different methodologies and think about uh, complementary forms of data and how to kind of shift my focus a bit. And I also took a lot of time getting deep into like theory. <laughs> so I've been reading an awful lot. Um, and uh, I did two other things. I, I started working with archival documents more here and doing like translations of them. And I set up um, kind of like a digital uh, collection. Um, so I started, um, we have like access to the most wonderful uh, digitized museum databases here. They've actually coordinated all the museums into one national database. Fantastic, but hard to search. It has a lot of problems with the search functions. So um, I know that I have this like uh, kind of like international craft community and um, they're like really excited to see like these um, old textile tools. So I started making a digital collection where I could pull together um, all of these different uh, museum listings that were already digitized but difficult to access and start uh, translating them and also adding uh, my own analysis of um, spinning wheels that I had picked up for sale that I would then um, uh, you know, restore and do kind of a deep dive, like almost like a close reading of them. And um, so I could add that material and also this kind of historical materials. So we have like um, access to a wonderful film archive here. And I found old films of spinning wheel makers. So I was able to include those as well and try to like kind of contextualize all of this and make it accessible for an English speaking audience as well. That's fantastic. In terms of that complementary data and you know, different methodologies, how different does your project, uh, quote, look compared to your proposal? Um, I mean, totally different, but also uh, my proposal was kind of this like plausible fiction, sure. you know, as, <laughs> as Ray likes to say. <laughs> um, 
like I, I just knew that I was going to feel very differently when I got here. So I wrote something that was plausible to me, but um, I figured it wasn't really what was going to happen anyway. I've always felt like I, you know, was pretty flexible about it. Um, I think, you know, I found, um, you know, my partner did an MA in folklore here during the pandemic also. Um, and we both, we both had these like interesting experiences where we had to change our minds about how we would do field work and what kind of data we would use. And both of us found ourselves drifting more toward what our passions really were and what we were most familiar with. So in a way, I mean, that's definitely what happened with my project. And in a way that feels better. Um, I think that my analysis is much more sophisticated as well. I would never have gotten to the point that I'm at with my analysis if I had been on my original path. And it's just because I, I, I had to do something else with my time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, um, I am using museum collections for data and, um, and archival records and kind of, and my own practice, my own craft practice with this practice-led research um, and putting it together with my fieldwork experiences so that all of these things are hopefully cohesive. <laughs> and that's actually the real trick is because now I have many different types of data, making those actually work together as a cohesive whole is complicated. Um, for me, the concept of practice has been kind of the unifying theme uh, because it's uh, in my methodology, it's in the way I'm looking at how folklore works in this particular context. And it's also kind of the uh, local methodology for studying crafts in this kind of like uh, native crafts context that we see at the Villiandi Culture Academy. Um, and, and that's really important also because um, the vast majority of the like recognized master craftspeople in Estonia that I've encountered were educated at Villiandi. So it, it's a very important uh, approach for practitioners as well as researchers here. Um, so I've just been kind of trying to find a way to make everything work together around the idea of practice. Sure. A question as a non-folklorist about folklore. So folklore comes out of you know these European movements, these European nationalist movements, um, and then you know, evolves into into eventually something different. Europe is now drifting back into that that sort of mindset in in various pockets, and Estonia is one of those places that has been touched by multiple iterations of you know, virulent right-wing versions of nationalism. Um, how have you had to kind of update your own understanding of folklore or uh, reconsider how folklore operates in, in that sort of setting? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in my time here, I've seen this kind of, um, you know, ethno-nationalist strain of thought um, kind of rising. Um, there's a local party that I mentioned before called ECRA and they are, you know, very right wing and they, they do use, like they use, um, there's a, one of the national symbols is the cornflower, rukilil, and they put this on the, on their flags. So their flags look really pretty. They've got this cornflower on them. They look so nice. Um, but they're very like anti-immigrant and, um, yeah, I guess, you know, in a way it's not hugely different for me from in the U S because of, um, the type of folklore that I study. Um, it, it tends to bring people together who have this very specific sort of mm, orientation. I'm trying to find a delicate way of talking about this. Um, so basically, you know how with um, this kind of like nationalist or uh, very like white supremacist sort of thinking in the US, um, you get, uh, there's this kind of sector of it that's all around this kind of like um, trad wives and back to the landers and all this, where it's like you have people who are into this kind of back to the land thing are, there are a lot of hippies 
right? And there are a lot of this kind of, you know, I used to work at a food co-op in Portland, Oregon. So right. a lot of them. <laughs> now, I've always thought about then, this weird part of the Venn diagram where the right wing and hippies, oh, they overlap in this weird way. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And also uh, the overlap with like natural health and things like that. Um, so this is kind of coming out of this like, um, you know, blood and soil idea that you get from like European fascism, but it's definitely in the US too. And um, because I am um, working with specific types of folklore that intersect really well with that group of people, um, there's always this moment that I have when I'm um, in the U.S. working with a new uh, person, you know, I'm, I'm looking at maybe interviewing them or whatever, where I have to kind of question, like, <laughs> you know, I make sure that they're not a Nazi first, because <laughs> it's definitely a thing um, that, that there's a crossover there. And um, I don't really feel good or safe about you know going and spending time with them or platforming them. Um, I haven't had that kind of experience here. I know that some of the people that I have um, encountered um, not in this really like high context um, field work, but kind of peripherally, I have then become friends with them on Facebook and seen them post nationalist things and um, like anti-immigrant things. And then I just kind of like, don't really want to, um, you know, interact with them in a, a more intense way than I had already. Um, but I haven't had that experience with um, this kind of like, you know, these kind of central figures in my fieldwork, I guess. Um, in terms of um, how folklore is associated with nationalism more generally, I don't know how much I can speak to that. I can say that, um, you know, I'm looking at these kind of cultural landscapes and um, the concept of heritage um, and where it intersects with um, the landscapes and also the native sheep. And there are things that one could say about, you know, the blood and soil aspect of that as well. Um, but I have, there are things that are in my analysis, maybe, um, but I don't see them uh, coming out that profoundly um, from local people as I talk to them. Um, so, you know, maybe they're in the back of my head, but I don't know if they're in their heads. I have not teased out that particular aspect from anyone yet. So, yeah. So I guess it's kind of a non-answer, but um, definitely it's something that I'm aware of and have to think about a lot as I just kind of move through the world as a folklorist here. Sure. Um, just to get a tiny bit fourth wallish, um, you know, before we started uh, recording and in our email exchanges, you were um, expressing some anxiety about, you know, how field work has gone, but from how you've described it, it sounds like everything has always had these through lines and everything actually does connect in um, in very meaningful and, and personal ways. Just to kind of peel back the curtain on, on that just a tiny bit, um, you know, what's the process been like in terms of personally kind of wrapping your head around how things have changed? Oh, um... <laughs> yeah, the sigh, right? Yeah, you don't have um, to go into, you know, no, 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 you know, it's gory fine, detail, it's fine. but... No, I have, I have some ideas about <laughs> how to make my way through this question. Um, so I was listening to um, one of the previous episodes. There were, I think, three uh, grad students in that one. And um, uh, people were talking about grief, um, like grieving the loss of this fieldwork opportunity. And um, that has been a really strong sentiment for me. Um, the reason why I wanted to do the PhD more than anything else was to be able to do this deep dive with field work. And I haven't been able to do it. Um, I've had field work experiences, but they've been more of this going back and forth sort of feeling instead of stopping and living in a specific place and seeing the same people day after day. I've mostly been living in Tartu, 
At first, this was because my partner was in coursework for his MA. So um, we just needed to be here. And then um, once we could have moved, uh, it was pandemic time. So what was the point? Um, I recently had another opportunity where I could have gone and lived on New Island and had funding that was going to come and it was great. And then here comes Omicron and it got really crazy again here and I just didn't feel like I could. Um, so I have a lot of grief about that. Um, and I also am always afraid that I'm overrepresenting my own ideas in my analysis rather than the ideas of the people that I'm working with locally. Um, that is something that's a huge concern of mine. Um, and of course, I'm mitigating it as best I can. Part of that is just making my analyses more conservative in terms of um, any sort of maybe motivations I might be attributing to people and rooting uh, my analysis more in personal practice and using autoethnography and things like that. Um, and of course, you know, like working with museum collections is a lot safer because um, I don't have to worry about <laughs> whether the objects think I've misinterpreted them, but I have to be as faithful as I can to them. And, you know, this sort of research is um, less, I guess, emotionally fraught, um, but I really wanna do this kind of deep dive with people and their experiences and what they think and feel. And I've only been able to get in kind of maybe halfway where I wanted to be. And I, I just, um, I feel really sad about that. I'm finding my way through it, but what I've um, had to tell myself uh, again and again <laughs> is that the dissertation isn't the only thing I'll ever write the dissertation is the starting point and that I'm setting the, the groundwork, I'm setting the foundations for future articles that I'll write, future books that I'll write. And ideally those can happen when it's a little bit better, a better environment for doing field work. And then I can do those deep dives. So right now what I'm trying to do is um, see you know, what I can do with what I have fill in the gaps where I can, um, you know, do additional interviews when it's safe to do them. Um, but I also have a timeline, so I do need to keep to that. Um, and just, you know, try to remain calm. <laughs> Don't panic, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, what I've known about you and what I've known about your research, um, especially coming from the, the practice end of things is that it's always been yeah, this very personal experience. And that's something that's always been you know, something very inspiring to me as an observer and something that I, I've, I've had these same anxieties in the, in the field. And it's something that I don't think we talk about nearly enough. And I think something, is, especially we don't talk about enough is we can only conduct field work the way we're oriented personally. Yeah how we experience fieldwork and how we conduct fieldwork is who we are as people. If, we, if we're not people person, people, people, um, people persons, then um, that's gonna reflect in how we do what we do. And the experiences that we have will be conditioned by who we are. Um, yeah. and, and something I had to get rid of was my own romanticization of what I thought fieldwork should be. Um, because when I look back at the data that I do have in the and and in the interviews that I have, they're conducted the in in a way that only I can conduct them, and the information that I get from them is information that only I, I can receive. Um, and 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 I see that very much in what you're talking about, and also you know the pictures that you post. It's it's very personal, but it's also very you know in, invested in where you are in a way that only you can do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, uh, because I'm so oriented uh, with practice, um, my, my body is a big important part of this um, and my skill set. Um, and, and that's uh, what I have and what I lack both um, are really important. 
Um, so, you know, as I explained before, you know, practice is a very important part of craft research in Europe, but um, it's still debated. Um, it's still contested. Do you really need to be a practitioner in order to study handicrafts in Europe? Well, maybe, maybe a non-practitioner gets totally different kinds of information. But one thing I've noticed is that you get completely different kinds of information if you're an expert practitioner, intermediate practitioner, or a beginner. And then that changes what you can actually say about uh, material culture, really, um, because your experience becomes one of a learner at different levels. Um, and if you're an expert, then you're um, basically like you are um, sitting side by side with somebody who's acknowledging you as being more or less on their level and saying, oh yeah, I'll share my techniques with you. And if you're a beginner, then you're going to get a very different idea of how things are done. Um, they're not going to share the most like complicated things with you. Like if I'm being recognized as an expert, then somebody's going to, which has happened with spinning, uh, using a spinning wheel. Um, I've had people, you know, see me as, oh, this is this American specialist in spinning wheels, right? And, um, and so then they're like, oh yeah, I'll share my thing. I actually had one person say, why would you want me to teach you how I do this? You already know everything. <laughs> they're like, no, I don't. What are you talking about? <laughs> but, um, but then she, the things that she was willing to share with me were very like, oh, very esoteric, <laughs> honestly. But if I come into a situation as a beginner, like I did with knitting, then, um, people have to give me really full explanations of the fundamentals. And that's so helpful for research. So um, even though I'm coming in like using this very like skill-based and practice-based methodology, um, you know, I would highly encourage people to come and do that as beginners as well, uh, because they'll get a really useful set of information that way. How much American knitting are you doing um, to, no, none. Not at all. No, not at all. And um, oh gosh. Um, so I, I've been knitting Kichnu mittens. Um, so Kichnu style, obviously, because I'm not a Kichnu Islander. Um, but I'm using um, their patterns uh, because you know I've gone and like learned from them directly, which was great. And also um, in a university level course because you can do that. You can take a university level course in knitting here, wow. and get this whole like picture of like traditional knitting and how it works in Estonia. And that's great. Anyway, um, so I've been doing that kind of knitting. And then I've also been doing a lot of spinning. And I actually did this like very um, <laughs> close reading, I guess, again, like this kind of like kinesthetic analysis of how people spin on Kiknu Island, because they use a really like old technique. And I've never seen it before. It's very exciting. And so they taught me how to do it, but they also let me take video. And so I've had this like real close analysis of how their hands work with, when they're doing this. And it's, um, you can't even do it if you don't prepare the fibers correctly first. It's like not just a spinning technique, it's a wool preparation technique. And so I've been doing that wool preparation technique and the spinning technique using antique spinning wheels. And that's been my main craft practice for a while. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and I really encourage people to um, seek out her Instagram because what she's describing is both breathtakingly beautiful, but also seemingly mind-bogglingly difficult um, to, to take raw materials and turn them into and turn them into yarn or turn them into you know, the fabric that you need. Um, one last <laughs> question. How yeah. much stuff are you taking back? Like, oh gosh, <laughs> you know what? I don't even know. Um, so like, am I going back? I don't know. I don't really know where, where's back. <laughs> so, um, I am trying to figure out my future right now and what continent that's on and what country that's in. Um, I have been, um, inadvertently building a career in Estonia somehow. Um, I've become an, <laughs> an academic writing teacher. 
Um, so yeah, so I just came back from um, like co-facilitating and teaching at a five-day writing retreat for PhD students in economics. Oh, I and thought you were participating a, in the retreat. <laughs> no, no, I was teaching. Um, and then I'm going right back out in a few days to teach another one. And um, I also, I've been doing academic writing or academic editing for three years. Um, so I'm like proofreading, but more than that. Like I'm also looking at argumentation and structure and all of this stuff. And, and I mean, all different fields, like medical papers and stuff too. And, um, and then I'm also teaching. Um, so, you know, there's this MA program I mentioned before, and it's a collaboration between the Billion D Culture Academy and the folklore department at the University of Tartu. And um, it's an English language MA program in folkloristics and applied heritage studies. Really cool program. You can actually do a kind of a craft project as part of your MA thesis. It's really innovative and cool. But um, I am the guest instructor teaching the MA students how to write their theses. Um, so I've been kind of building up all this, you know, kind of expertise in the academic writing. And um, yeah, and also just kind of picking up a lot of like interesting tasks. I'm working on an uh, EU level project right now in like heritage education and open innovation. And um, I also am part of the kind of sort of part of the organizing team for Craft Camp, which is an, an annual week-long event in Viljandi. Uh, Viljandi Culture Academy brings in um, international craftspeople and they spend a week learning Estonian crafts from the like master craftspeople. And we also go out on like a field trip and like, you know, get kind of do this like, you know, I guess heritage tourism thing, but, um, but it's very like education focused. So um, I'm uh, I just started running their Instagram. We have a brand new Instagram and I do editing for them. And also I'm their photographer. So I've been picking up a lot of different things. And that means I have no idea what's going on right now. Um, if I end up moving back to the States, yeah, I have to bring like 10 spinning wheels with me and I have no idea how that's going to work. In addition to all the materials and stuff like that, but that's, it's fantastic. Congratulations yeah. on on, on everything that you have going on. Um, I, I suppose as, you know, as soon as you um, changed from how I initially knew you as Tilly to Matilda, and, and, and if you want for the sake of, you know, a good laugh, you can explain why that is. Oh, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> uh, if, if anyone wants to know, they should uh, take a class in Estonian and, and, they, can, and they can quickly figure out. Um, but that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and you know, every, everything you're doing sounds fantastic. Thank you very much. I appreciate taking the time talking about material culture in Estonia. I think it deserves a lot of attention and I'm really privileged to be able to be working with it even under these weird pandemic conditions. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Soundlore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.